0: what the heck is direct primary care or direct care actually since there are other specialties that are trying this practice model other than primary care it's a subscription service basically that gives your patients access to you 24 7 uh, and it's disruptive sometimes so we talked to dr marielle conception who is the host of my dpc story where she interviews physicians on their direct care journey So we talk about her practice, her podcast, why she chose to stop billing insurance company and give her patients access to her 24 seven. We'll talk about what happens when patients abuse this service, why patients tend not to do that, um, which patients tend to be interested in this model and why earlier that day, a weekday, she wasn't even in the office. Dr. Conception went to Creighton Med School, completed her Valley Family Medicine Residency in Modesta, California, and then moved to rural Northern California. She started working in the corporate model before starting her direct primary care practice, for which she is clearly an evangelist. Welcome to The Physician's
1: Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now,
0: here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road.
1: Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I can make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash
0: doctor home for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Dr. Marielle Conception, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Brad, for having
2: me today. This is super exciting.
0: So we're we're talking about direct primary care. Mm -hmm. So that means, well, what does that mean? Let's start with that. What is direct primary care? What is direct primary care as opposed to like concierge medicine Mm -hmm. as opposed to just like just not taking insurance? Like what, what do these things mean?
2: Yeah. So I absolutely love this question. And I think it's super appropriate to start with this. Um, especially for an audience of physicians on your podcast and on your YouTube channel who might not be familiar with the terminology, a lot of people assume that direct primary care or DPC is concierge medicine. And where the line in the sand is drawn, so to speak, is that a typical concierge practice will take insurance while charging a patient, typically a very high fee for concierge style services. So um, being able to text, call your doctor is in concierge medicine most of the time, but you are still being billed and limited to what insurance says you know you you have covered or not. But typically in in practices where a person is a direct primary care physician, a direct primary care physician typically will offer concierge style services. So, for example, in my own practice, patients can text, call, leave me a, a um, leave me a message directly in the portal that goes directly to me and not an administrative assistant, and yet. The average price per member per month for all Americans is on average $75 to $100 per member per month. Um, there are some practices that charge children as little as $10 a month for concierge-level services without saying, yes, I'm going to charge you your fee plus, then I'm going to bill your, your visit to your insurance company, and then you might have to pay um the premiums on or not the premiums, but you might have to pay for your visit um, through an insurance bill plus the doctor's fee on top of that so that's that's how I like to describe the difference between concierge typical practices and direct primary
0: care okay, okay, I think I got that and mm-hmm. and so what made you decide to leave typical medical practice yeah. and and start direct primary care? Yeah, that's
2: a great question. So um, I went from being trained at Creighton University um, in a rural setting. I did most of my family medicine uh, rotations, and that was in Superior, Nebraska. It's a town of 2,000 people that serves about a 6,000 people um, radius in the middle of the geographic United States. And there I saw the power of being a family physician, being a, a generational family physician, somebody who knew, you know, kids. All the way until they were adults. All the way until they were delivering their own. Or, uh, all the way until they were having their own grandkids join the world, and so I loved that. And I I only sought out rural locations to practice family medicine after residency. My husband, who's also a family medicine physician, um, we had heard early on about this idea of job share, and we're like, "What is job share? That's amazing!" And so. Um, We had had this dream of having a family and being able to be home with our kids and not having to be 100% at a job and have to employ, um, you know, a nanny or an au au pair um, while being able to practice in a rural uh, position because he also trained in Superior, Nebraska. And so that culminated in us finding a job that we thought was our dream job in rural.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Job share. What yeah. I mean, it sounds like two people together are one full-time, phys- one FTE, one full-time employee. Yep. So, okay.
2: Yeah, that's it exactly. And so, um, you know, a little backstory, uh, there was a an, a lovely obstetrician who we worked with um, at one of our rotations in uh, OB and we asked him one day, we're like, oh yeah, how old are your kids? And he's like, I, I think 26, but they live in Chicago and I don't live with them, so I don't actually remember and that was one of the you know impressionable moments where we're like we want to have a family but we want to be able to be there with our kids so a job share correct is is a a job that is shared by two people to make one equivalent worker one fte Um, and so when we moved to um, northern california we both did residency at the same location um we chose to pursue a job in rural northern california where we were able to do full scope care um that was that was what we thought was our dream job and then after the golden handcuffs of here's your bonus sign on and here's your um here is your salary then it was okay so now we're going to go to rvus and we had to negotiate fairness of RVUs. Um, for example, our RVU rates were being calculated at a 2017-2018 rate, even though it was no longer 2017-2018, and we had to fight to prove that. Um, and the, the the battle of being paid fairly while still being able to protect the time that we had with patients to maintain the quality we had with patients was just continuously um, it was a, it was in a continuous battle, um, in terms of like how we felt the situation was going. So, um, it was September of 2020 when I was 28 weeks pregnant with our second child And negotiations pretty much stopped because there was a turnaround of uh, admins at the company we worked for. And we basically both got a letter that said, well, you can either consider yourselves terminated unless you sign the RVU contract that we determine is appropriate. And so knowing this history of inappropriate contracts and inappropriate RVU compensation, in my opinion, um, we were given this letter of... You're going to be fired, or else. And I said, "Well, thanks, but no thanks. I can't be enslaved to take care of my patients based on how an admin, you know, dictates is appropriate." And no, so, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. yeah.
0: Marielle, if if you really cared about your patients, then you would take whatever they give you, right? <laughs> that's I'm, that's I'm, unfortunately, I'm getting I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting, that's unfortunately
2: I'm getting. the that's what the they feel. sell you, and that's what yep. we,
0: yeah, that's what they make you feel. Mm-hmm. That's how they yep. make you feel.
2: Yeah. And, and it's, it's and they're just so gonna
0: pocket the difference. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And well, I, and that, that happened that, um, you know, the, the strategies of yes, CMS is going to increase your RVU rate for family medicine. However, of that increased rate, we're only going to give you X percent. So, you know, the things that we didn't learn in medical school are this idea that, um, you know, we are, we are givers who go into medicine in general. Like we put our lives towards careers where we're taking care of other people. And yet too often, especially in primary care, we're made to feel like we're the bad people. And so with that feeling of like, you literally just gave me a like sign this or be fired letter. And I'm 28 weeks pregnant. I'm going to lose healthcare insurance for my child. Oh, heck no. And so at that point, um, I was very thankful that an orthopedic surgeon two years prior had told me about direct primary care. I'd gone to um conferences to learn about direct primary care, but I really Wait, hadn't an
0: orthopedic surgeon taught a primary care physician yep. about primary care.
2: Yeah, because that was be the orthopedic last specialty. Surgeon, I know. Kind of, yeah. But you know, it's like just how because you you work in the emergency room, you know, like I heard on a, a recent recording you see 28 to 38 patients on one of your shifts, and it's like no matter who you are as a physician in emergency medicine dermatology it doesn't matter orthopedic surgeon is just another example of this that the the you know devaluation of physicians Um, And the ability for us to be able to take care of our patients appropriately and needing the time to do that has become so bastardized in our healthcare system. And so an orthopedic surgeon, yes, um, Dr. Ariana Demers, was the one who had said, you're super frustrated with the negotiations that you're experiencing. Why don't you read about direct primary care? And so, yes, she had told me about DPC uh, about two years earlier, and she had left um, our local hospital system to open up her own private practice. So people are doing direct primary care as a business model um, in their own specialties left and right these days. Um, but for me, when I was uh when I was a- armed with the information of what is direct primary care, how powerful can it be? And arguably it can happen in and be successful in any community that's rural, urban, doesn't matter. Um I basically had the you either do DPC or you leave medicine moment. And so it was at that time that I chose to do direct permacare. So that's the the long answer to your question of how did I choose DPC?
0: And then and then come on, I feel like the story's rolling. And then what happened?
2: Yeah. So so it, it is. I mean, honestly, I I am um Every single day I tell as many people, that's patients as well as physicians included, about direct primary care. Because the model, in my opinion, is really um at the crux of how we change the, the quality and the accessibility and the availability of primary care, uh, as well as, like I mentioned, you know, specialists are choosing direct primary care all over as a business model all over the nation. Um, this is really how we return. Healthcare to the people and, and give Americans the health care that every single human being deserves who happens to be physically in the United States of America. And so when I say that again, I go back to people are paying $10 a month for their child to have access to their doctor. So for example, um yeah, you have a rash. That stinks. Go ahead and text me a picture of that and we can see what we can do and if I need to see you in person then we'll do that. But in general, direct primary care um is so powerful in terms of reaching again accessibility, availability and affordability to all Americans that I have this uh passion of continuing to share about direct primary care and highlight the physicians doing direct primary care As as an everyday part of my life, and so in addition to seeing patients, I also host a podcast, and that's how you know we connected. um, And my podcast, my DPC story, is literally highlighting physicians all over the country who are doing direct primary care and how they're doing it. Because at the at the root of it, it's not only education about DPC, but it's also a set of it was it's a series to to give other physicians, no matter what. Um, specialty they're in, the tools to say, oh, well, they didn't go to business school either, but yet they own their own business and they're successful in rural urban settings. It doesn't matter. Wow, well, I could do that too. And so um, for me, it's it's my own little contribution to the movement that has really changed the lives of so many Americans already, so many physicians' lives already, and it continues to grow like wildfire, which I'm super happy to see, but also, um, I just feel like, uh, you know, it's almost like a, um, it's almost, it's so rewarding to my soul to see people making an impact in their communities and feeling that, wow, this is a, this is why I went to medical school, not because I needed, you know, to work for a system where I saw too many patients in a day, but I really actually got to care for my patients. And so, you know, this is going into the weeds a little bit, but um, like before we started recording, you asked, like, oh, you know, you're at the end of your workday. And and technically, yes, I'm at the end of my workday, but I've I've seen zero patients today. I've I've had messages um virtually, but but I've not seen any patients because my patients, um, in terms of that concierge style of care, but not at a concierge price, my patients are still able to message me directly and I get back to them, but I don't I don't need to physically see them in person because I'm no longer working for the 992 405 04, whatever. I don't care about those anymore because my patients understand the value of affordability, accessibility, and availability, and they just message me directly. So I technically have been working, but I've taken care of my kid today, taken him to the doctor's appointment, took taken a nap, like <laughs> I've done lots of things today. Um, and I, I feel so much. Um, I, I feel so so good inside because I'm contributing to care locally as well as contributing to the movement of DPC nationally.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I I, I get it. I mean, I can't tell you how many patients that I see in a given day that I could have diagnosed them accurately yep. and managed them over the phone mm-hmm. if they just told me their story. You know, I could have saved them the trip. I could have saved them... now, but I can't do that because billing. I you know I take insurance and billing. Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. There's also the issue of the liability, right? Like let's say you're wrong and but your your patients, I would imagine, also recognize that if you're not being seen, there's gonna be some, there's there's room for error there. And but you're saving them the convenience of taking a full day off. And you know what? If this doesn't work and I don't get better, okay, now I will come in. Correct.
2: Yeah, that's, that's it. Exactly. And so there are direct primary care practices that do exclusively telemedicine, but in my practice, I do have, uh, I just physically opened up a clinic. I was doing telemedicine and home visits previously because that's, that's correct. I, I mean, in terms of the physical exam that you need, you know, you can't, I mean, yes, there are tools where you can like hear a patient's heart or hear their lungs um, virtually, but in terms of me, you know, like seeing how the chest is rising, seeing those retractions, hearing all of the things, you know, being in the home to see the, the physical environment, the, the the, the beauty of direct primary care to address that concern about liability is that it's relationship-based care so that people are, you know, they, they're plugged in with their physician for the long haul in most cases. And so, you know, if, if there's somebody who never calls and you're like, mm, the fact that you're messaging me, I mean, like, for example, I have this 90 something year old who, um, they put their weight in the, uh, in my, electronic medical record. And I monitor that. And, you know, when I noticed the weight was going up, I, I reached out and said, Hey, didn't know if you are having symptoms. And they said, Oh, I didn't even realize I was, but I was having some swelling in my legs and whatnot. And so I didn't know which
0: direction you were taking that. I saw their weight going up and I was like,
2: yeah, so the sandwiches,
0: it's the sandwiches mm -hmm. again. Yeah. No, no, and no, so, someone with a congestive heart failure. Okay, yeah, I get
2: it. exactly. And so um, in, in my world, in the world of a direct primary care physician who is, or direct care physician, because again, specialists are choosing this as a model, um, where you have a smaller panel of patients and are able to, to monitor them in different ways, whether that be via telemedicine or via in-person, um, you can also proactively say hey, I noticed an issue about you or, hey, it's time for your skin cancer screening. Let's go ahead and schedule you because you're not what you're not reactively waiting until like, oh, they got seen in the emergency room or they got discharged from the hospital. And now they need to see you within a week. So it, it's no longer like that. Um, so it, it, it's a very different way to address that liability issue. But it's it's because it's uh, and I, I pull this quote from Dr. Jake Much, who's in um Williamsburg, Virginia, at defiant DPC, but he calls it small batch medicine. And that and that I absolutely believe really represents what we do because it's like if you have even a hint of something is off or you are trying to be proactive about something, you have the time to go after that and not just like let it go. So, yeah, that that to me that addresses the the concern about liability, which is very very reasonable and very you know, we we it's it's a real thing as a physician especially with me being in California. Yeah.
0: So how does, the you touched on it when we were comparing DPC to to concierge, but like, how does your compensation work? How does your Mm -hmm. business model work? Yep. That's a great question.
2: So in terms of business model, um, the the business model at a high level zoomed out view is we are like a Netflix uh, or gym Mm -hmm. membership subscription. So for example, um, you know, you pay $8.95 or whatever the rate is for Netflix and you either watch it or you don't. The same thing in direct primary care. So the patient pays a set rate per member per month, depending on what the doctor sets or what the, the direct primary care company sets. Um, and then that's what they, the patient understands is their share per month um, and to, to have, as a result, access to their doctor when they need them. Um, and so that allows us to not have to worry about well, shucks, I only saw, I only, you know, I, I had five no-shows and only two showed up and I got two today and that's all I brought home. And it's like, no, no, we don't have to do that anymore because like I said, you know, I, I have technically been working today, but I have not been working to see patients in the office because I'm addressing their needs without having to see them in person. And so- that's so, the
0: only income is from the subscription.
2: Well, so that, that is how some people do their direct primary care uh, membership. There's a saying that I absolutely love, if you've seen 1DPC, you've seen 1DPC. So that's the zoomed out level of membership, which is, uh, is in most cases, the typical direct primary care um, value proposition to patients. But then other people do, and like I'm one of those people, I charge... Um, extra for if there's procedures, because lidocaine costs a ton more than it used to, um, you know, for different procedures, for skin biopsies, for doing skin cancer screening, um, for doing, uh, you know, non-member services. I do offer, because my community is so, it is such a medical desert and it is so in need of basic things like availability for pap smears. Like people can't even get in to see a gynecologist. Um, and so, and there's very few primary care physicians in my area. And so it's like, yeah, if you are at college and you can't afford the time to go to an obstetrician, you can't wait and you need something done. I offer non-member services. So there's different ways to, um, to generate an income. And then also in terms of, you know, but you're not on,
0: billing that through insurance. Um, like so you're not billing the biopsies through insurance or do you bill them and then they can go after the insurance company for the for the difference?
2: Yep. That's a perfect question. And I really appreciate you asking that. So um, and that's actually something that I am working to clarify in my own in my own area. Um, So if a patient comes in who's not a member of my practice, but they need something like a pap smear, I will charge them a rate. And so my rate is $50 for me to do to perform the pap smear and all the services there's that it's a transparent price Um, in terms of what happens with the pathology sample that is billed to insurance. And so a patient typically when they, when they're like, oh, that's it, I can get it done this day when it's convenient for me and then you bill the insurance for everything else, like that is a a, a like no-brainer in my area. Bucks. People that's are like go yeah. Yes, exactly. And so um that's that's how a lot of um a lot of direct primary care practices who offer non-member services will operate. And then even for members, members can have the choice whether like, for example, labs. So transparently, you know, a, a, a CBC is less than five bucks typically at a national um, lab service uh, company. Um, and so a patient can be told by their DPC physician um, if they're a member typically, your CBC is either $5 if you go here and you pay directly, um, or you can use your insurance and magically in the black box it will be translated to whatever the insurance company wishes to value that CBC at. And so, you know, I've had a lot of patients who chose, oh no, I'll just, I'll just do the insurance because that's our culture, is just like charge yeah. that insurance card, just like a credit card, and then magically there's a number at the end, like a flu shot costing $184 for my son one year. And, and so we learned the hard way, like, well, we're not going to do that again, but for labs again, going back there, um, my patients now are like, oh yes, vitamin D not covered by Medicare. I'm going to go ahead with the less than $20 option for that one. Thanks. So it's, um, there's different ways to, um, address that value proposition, but in terms of going back to the question of how do we make our income, there's ways to charge through membership, which is you have X number of members per month paying you on average, this amount of money, and that's your take home minus your overhead, um, super simple, high level, you know, math there.
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, how does your patient population differ from your experience with taking insurance to DPC? You know, yeah. are, they, are they more or less educated? Is it higher or lower socioeconomic status? More or less demanding? More or less medically complicated? Or pretty similar?
2: Yeah. So what I would say is that that is exactly, I think, the reason why direct primary care is able to thrive in any community because the direct primary care physician, their value proposition, no matter how they, you know, um, how they personalize their DPC to their community, that will attract certain people. So in my practice, 100% of my patients are insured. In terms of my education level, it's all over the board. But in terms of the people who believe in my practice and who have joined they understand that the nearest urgent care is 30 minutes away and you can't get there on Saturdays and Sundays because then they're not open. Um, And so there's practices who are in, you know, very, very heavily um, corporatized uh, urban settings, but The availability of having a transparent rate and an affordable rate for a college student or for a a parent who has multiple children, Um, the the people who join really depends on who understands in that community the value of the direct primary care physician's model. So there are practices where 60% are uninsured. There are practices where 60% are employed and it's their employer who provides the direct primary care membership for them. Um, It it very much differs all over the country, and that's why in every episode that I feature a physician in um, on the podcast, people can say, oh, that community is just like mine. Wow, I didn't think that it could work in my community because of, you know, I have uh, undocumented members in my practice who you know, don't have health insurance or I have, everyone has health insurance and they all have their, you know, I have really good health insurance plans, but yet they can't get into the doctor. So that, that, again, that's the beauty of if you've seen one DPC, you've seen one DPC and that definitely impacts the people who understand and and believe in the model.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about the undocumented population Mm -hmm. because right, they, they, they're stuck getting it because they can't get insurance they're like stuck in what seems like an untenable situation and yeah. nowhere to go and um and it, it seems like it would be a great a great model for them in particular mm-hmm.
2: and um, I mean you there's there's examples like Dr Wendy Malaska in Wisconsin Dr Belena Mott in Michigan they are taking care of undocumented um uh, you know people in this country and there's situations where it's like well I ran out of my insulin how how am I supposed to get insulin because I don't have insurance when they when their patients have come over from different countries? Or, you know, there's people like Dr. Dipdimunkur, who takes care of people who for six months they're in India, and then when they come back, they need, you know, somebody to take care of them. And um, that that type of service is offered. Um, and then when you talk about just undocumented people, the other thing too is that even if you have, like in California, we have Medical, not Medicaid. But it's like, there's there's no access. I mean, like, for example, even like in the summer of this year, if you're over 50, no matter who you are in the state of California, you can get access to Medi-Cal. However, it's like, okay, you're over 50, you have Medi-Cal now as a benefit, whether you're documented or undocumented, but you need a rheumatology visit and the rheumatology visit is three hours away. You don't have the gas nor the car to get there. And it's also six to eight months away so that's your health care because you're 50 and you now are a beneficiary of Medi-Cal. So even with insurance, you know, the and I, I pointed this out to a patient, even on the back of the insurance card, it says this card does not guarantee health care <laughs> because it does not. Insurance is not health care. Care from a physician is healthcare. Care when you actually need it is healthcare, but care because you carry a card that we use like a credit card is not healthcare, unfortunately, in this country
0: how did you grow your practice? Like, how did you get the word out for people, right? As you said, people have it in their minds that they just use their insurance card like a credit card. Like, of course, I'm going to run it through insurance because it has to be run through insurance. Like, how did you start reaching out to people and going, hey, 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 this is a thing. This is the thing that you will really appreciate if we do this together.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of how a physician grows, how I grew my practice. One thing I will say is that no matter where you are in the States, you definitely have to be aware of non-compete and enforceable non-compete laws in your state. So for example, um, in New York, there might be a different non-compete than there is in California. In California, they're non-enforceable. So that impacts how a patient can learn about direct primary care from their Physician, if, if their physician is going to be going into direct primary care, so that is something for especially those early on in training, medical students, residents to keep in mind if they can negotiate out of their contract non-competes, um, or if they're in a state that's not enforceable or that uh, where a non-compete is not enforceable, it, it's it's null and void, doesn't matter. Um, in terms of when a patient is learning about direct primary care and is attracted to and then joins a direct primary care practice, that's going to differ depending on the patient and the location and the offering of the DPC physician. But in terms of typically what happens is there's usually this threshold of a direct primary care physician will either open like Dr. Kissy Blackwell in Wichita Falls, uh, Texas, who opened- How do you remember 200... all these
0: people's names? <laughs> You've name dropped so many people from all of your episodes. Like I can't keep a person's name in my head for more than 30 seconds. And you remember everybody's. First and last name, and pronounce it impeccably. I think <laughs> this is. You could also be making all these people up. Are yeah, you making the, all these people up?
2: I, I definitely am not doing the latter. But this is how much, how much each one of those people is really impacting healthcare in America. Right? It's like they mean so much to me because they are doing this basic healthcare right for. I mean, not they're not they're, that they're doing, but they're providing this basic human right. Is what I meant to say to people in their communities and making such a difference every day. And for a primary care physician, it just makes me so happy that I am able to be in the space with these people. So that's, for me, that's how I remember not only their, their names, but their stories. And so she opened, Dr. Kissy Blackwell, with 278 people on her waiting list before she opened her doors. And then there's people like myself, I opened with zero and grew from there. But in terms of how people grow, usually there is this threshold of word of mouth and around 50 patients, 100 patients. Then everyone's like, oh, everyone's telling other people about, oh yeah, I just texted my doctor, no big, like, sorry, you had to go to urgent care for, you know, a strep swab when you could have done that for like, $15 or something or included in your membership. Um, and then people start becoming the value proposition and the, the, uh, advertisement for your practice. And so it, it really allows, again, it, it allows that autonomy from a physician, but then it allows the physician to just do what they need to do. Now there are markets like, um, the direct care physicians in Pittsburgh. It's a group of people who are physicians currently, they're all females. Um, where they each have their own practices, but together they're collaborating to have a marketing campaign to to be seen and heard above the offerings that are corporate in Pittsburgh. But in terms of, you know, that that word of mouth, that is typically how a direct primary care practice will grow. And then how to get that word of mouth going, people do it all different ways. Um, they go to BNI meetings, they go to ch- um, chamber of commerce meetings, they just, you know, go into the local subway and tell the owner, hey, like, if you're looking for healthcare, I'm open. Um, in terms of my practice, I was very fortunate because I practiced for almost six years in my neighborhood. And so being again in a medical desert, my patients who joined immediately, I was, I, it was, it was very humbling because my patients, all who joined in the first year were just like, I I can't lose you. Like I, I have, I have very much, um, valued our, our relationship as a physician patient. And I can't lose that because there there is nothing else like this up here. And that was when I was in fee-for-service, which makes me so happy that they understood that this is even better than that um, it, at my private practice. Yeah.
0: Have you had any proceduralists that you've encountered? Like like surgeons, like you mentioned the orthopedic surgeon, right? And you, you said not direct primary care, but direct care. Uh So can you, I know it's not in, in your practice per se, but what about some of these like higher cost procedures? Yeah. Right. Do you, do you know how any of that works?
2: Yeah, that's a great question and so needed. Um, So the first example I'd love to say is that, you know, a family practice doctor, primary care doctor can be doing procedures left and right because, you know, that that might be within our wheelhouse and our training. So for example, circumcisions, biopsies, um, you know, colposcopies, those types of things, even um, deliveries, like people in C-sections, people in primary care do those things still. Um, When it comes to specialists who are doing procedures, Um, I like to highlight options like the uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma and the Wellbridge Surgical Center in Indiana. Those are places where literally you can go on the website and say, I need a colonoscopy or whatever it is. And you can get an estimate as to this is how much it costs. So when a person is open to, okay, my plane ticket on Southwest plus the hotel on hotels.com plus the surgery is still less than what I would have paid through using my insurance benefit And I have the time to take off of work. Well, I'm going to do that. Sure. So there are places where physicians are getting together and collaborating to say, yes, together as specialists, we can offer a whole surgical center, uh, even as an option. So different types of surgeries happen at those surgical centers, people who are doing things like neurology, endocrinology, um, rheumatology, dermatology, uh, let's see what else, uh, gastroenterology. Um, there's so many examples of where people are saying, okay, Um, this portion of my practice, I can have either an insurance rate or a cash rate. Or they're just saying, no, I just do all cash. And so that really depends on how a person is, you know, using their skills in specialty care and where their patients are able to get access. If they, if they are finding that a cash price is what allows them to fill their practice, then they'll do that. If they're finding that, you know, because there are some hybrids out there that a patient will want to use their insurance for um for uh, services, they can be apart from a corporate, uh, location, but still offer insurance-based care. Um, oh, I, and i I forgot to mention cardiology. That's also a big one where people are doing, you know, all, um, outpatient cardiology workups, visits, all of that stuff, cause there's no accessibility and they're just paying cash. So there's so many options and the, the options are, um, are out there for any specialty. I mean, even vascular surgery, I was talking to somebody who's a dear friend and they were saying. Even if I just did the ultrasound review for people, just that portion I could be charging a cash rate for and have, you know, a a very quick turnaround versus if they had to see me in the office. And because that uh, person is, you know, licensed in a state rather than a county – that service could be helpful for people all over the the state that they live in. so there's there's so many options and this is where i really appreciate like you asking these questions because again you're like your audience is the the same type of people that we went to medical school with and it's like we didn't learn that this was an option in medical school and residency it was just this is this is your chart now you code it and then you go to work for a yeah. coding uh employer. That that's the this typical um the typical pathway that we take as physicians, especially in primary care these days.
0: Well and, and for that vascular surgeon doing the ultrasounds, you know, in a in a large state or mm-hmm. maybe even not in a large state, um, you know, you health insurance is local. You can really only take care of like if you're reading ultrasounds for people that live far away, like I'm on Long Island. I can't be I don't have any contracts in Buffalo, but I'm licensed in New York state. So really Mm -hmm. the entire state now becomes my catchment area in, in that situation. So really, uh, you know, it could, it could work. It could work. Um, so you're available to your patients 24 Mm seven. Yeah. So how do things like vacation and getting drunk work?
2: (laughs) Well, so I definitely am not a ladder. I, I, uh, in the ladder group often I, um, I don't think I've ever been drunk technically because I like will sniff alcohol. It's so funny. I was with, uh, with a group of physicians doing a direct primary care, you know, um, themed retreat. And I sniffed the wine that they had at their wine, um, tasting. And I was, my eyes shut and I was, Talking like a sloth, so I don't do alcohol. But in terms of the twenty-four-seven and vacation, and just you know the idea of not creating another burnout situation, the beauty of direct primary care is that because it's a relationship-based practice, patients for the the majority of the time, and this is all over the nation because I often ask this question of my own guests, is that they don't my the patients do not have the anxiety of oh my gosh, I'm not going to get in for six months. So I have to ask all the questions right now, or I have to ask after hours because that's when I remembered. And it's like, no, you you actually have access to your doctor when you need them. So they they are very mindful and respectful most of the time that it's like, my doctor, we got to take care of our doctor so that they can take care of us. So they typically will, you know, like Dr. Julie Gunther in Idaho, I mean, they're cheering her on if she needs to take vacation. My patients were like, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. You get to go to Legoland because we were, we were, we were gone in Legoland in August with my now five-year-old and now two-year-old, but they're very supportive. And then after hours in my practice, which has been open, open a little over a year, I've gotten three calls after hours. One was for a cardiac concern. One was, excuse me, two were for cardiac concerns and the third one was for, um, something that was non-acute, but what we tell our patients is if you don't know if you're going to go to the ER or stay home, that's a great way. It's a great time to contact your doctor. If you're like, this is, I'm having a cardiac arrest. You know, we're not, some people do hospital medicine, but typically, um, the, 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 the verbiage to patients is if it's a medical emergency, dial 911, like it is on any medical, you know, uh, reception line or message machine. Um, and the same thing holds for direct primary care, but it's it, if a patient is seeking guidance as to is this acute or not, to the point where I need to drive 45 minutes to the emergency room, that's a great time to ask, you know, your physician. But that doesn't happen, thankfully, too often. And then even in things like COVID, we saw direct primary care thrive as a movement because there wasn't the limitation in the you know spring about oh, there's no coverage for telemedicine services. Direct primary care has always incorporated telemedicine. And so um, we kept, as as a movement, we kept so many people out of the hospitals because we were able to say, here's the pulse ox. It's like 16 bucks, go ahead and here, you can buy it, check it out, whatever. And we're gonna help watch you over telemedicine if we need to see you in person, whatever. But they kept people out of the hospital for COVID, not to mention, like I I mentioned the CHF, you know, example, but there's so many things because it's a longevity relationship and not just periodically every few months you get seen um, that it, it's so powerful to have access. And that's where patients don't typically abuse the 24-7 aspect because they can reach their doctor the next day if they need to. I
0: mean, yeah. But have you had any patients or even heard about patients from other DPC physicians that because some patients don't understand boundaries like it's not oh, yeah. even that they're pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. it's that they it's just something that they just don't understand and you can so- often see that when you're interacting with them oh yeah and especially in fever service
2: because too many times it was like and <clears throat> i have my list of Fifty-two items that I'd like to cover in my eight-minute visit with you, and it was like the boundaries there. That was an exercise for me in boundaries. When when I look at direct primary care models all over the nation, yes, boundaries are absolutely something that a physician has to address. Whether that be um, you know boundaries where they're uh, the number of hours that they're checking messages or how they're checking messages. But when it comes to patients who are quote unquote high utilizers, that's what we typically call a patient who is um, really not respecting the boundaries set forth by the practice, um, a physician, you know, we are as, as direct primary care and direct care physicians, we have chosen a different path than the typical going into employed medicine. And so with that, we have, um, we have an air about us in terms of we value ourselves. And so when it comes to patients who are, you know, making us feel uncomfortable, stressed out, overworked, all of those things. When we have a community where direct primary care physicians, I mean, if you go into a room of them, it's like, where, like, what Kool-Aid did people just drink? Because this is crazy. Like, everyone's so happy. And the way that people protect that is, one- seeking support from other people and saying hey how do you manage this situation if a patient will like if they're a night shift worker on the OB floor and they text at 2:30 in the morning and they don't understand that like that dings your phone then you know typically the the recommendation for most of us would be yeah and you got to talk to that patient and say hey i am a single show here or i'm you know taking care of so many patients
0: Yeah. Um, so you draw so you draw that boundary but then Um, have you been in a circumstance or have you heard from one of your colleagues where they've had to let a patient go? Oh, absolutely. Like, okay. Okay. So that's that's another, okay. So it's Mm -hmm. like, it's not like you've paid your money and now you can do whatever you want. No, it's I'm going to warn you. And then clearly we've had this conversation. If we have to have it one more time, Mm -hmm. you're off the panel. I'm sorry. It's just not working.
2: Yes, and people protect that in their patient contracts when they sign a membership saying that, you know, if these things happen, if abusive language is is happening, if, you know, um, if if whatever the physician sets forth is being done and you've you've had a warning, then this is not going to be the best fit for you. Um, there are some physicians who, and they they've shared this on the podcast, they'll they'll say things like, All right. And so going over the patient contract before you sign on to my practice, you need to understand I have two children and I go to bed at 730. And so if you contact me, you better have a darn good reason for contacting me after. And that's Mm -hmm. how, you know, this is uh, this is how one physician she manages her um, patient onboarding um, at the beginning of her practice before the members sign on. Because she's saying right from the beginning, this is my practice and this is how I run my practice. If you cannot respect that, you cannot be part of my practice. And so that that is very common how people um, are setting those boundaries. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you? Let's say, let's say we have a listener who, <laughs> who wants to be on your panel uh, or they want to listen to your, your podcast, they want to connect with you on, on social media. Where do we find you?
2: Yeah so great question um so the most common things would be uh, with the at my dpc story handles so instagram i it's at it, the <laughs> I guess generally my dpcstory.com would be uh, the the branching point as to where to hear uh, physicians from all over the country. Um, I have a mapper where people can click on their area and listen to episodes in that region. Um, I also have a resource page where people can download completely free, you know, checklists as to how to open your direct primary care practice from nothing. Um, and then on the bottom of my website, I have all of the social handles. So just at my DPC story doc, or at my DPC story would be, uh, where all of the social media lives on any platform pretty much. Um, but mydpcstory.com is probably the best place to start out. And then if people are podcasters, um, on all major podcast platforms, uh, you can find my DPC story, the podcast.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, it's really exciting stuff that you're doing and clearly you're an evangelist for it. Um, And thanks for all the work you're doing for your patients and for medicine. Absolutely.
2: Thank you so much for having me and for helping spread the word about direct primary care. That
1: was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at PhysiciansGuideToDoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.